though I didn't decide 20 minutes ago. We will be in John 17 this morning. I didn't want to wake him up with a late text. Um, I was originally planning on preaching the crucifixion out of John 19, and though obviously the cross is the most obvious action that demonstrates the heart of our shepherd toward us, uh, my heart was drawn to the last paragraph of John 17 where Jesus explains why he's going to the cross, because I think it, it is a, a better explanation uh, to us of his heart for us. Um, so I like to just sit at the feet of Jesus and, and listen to him pouring out his heart to his father and explaining to his father why he's doing what he's doing, what his desire is. Uh, to remind you just a little bit about the context of John 17, uh, this is Christ's high priestly intercession for us. Uh, it's late Thursday evening. Uh, Christ will be crucified in a few hours. Uh, he's shared an intimate time with his disciples in the upper room, celebrated the Passover, washed their feet. Uh, Judas already left to plan his betrayal. And so Christ is with the 11, his true disciples, his own. He speaks to them about his love for them, encourages them that he's going to preserve them, he's going to send him, send them his Holy Spirit. And Christ returns uh, at the very end of chapter 16 to speak words of encouragement to them and says, I have overcome the world. Now, John 18.1 explains to us that right before he gets to the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Brook, he stops and he prays the prayer of John 17. And just doing a little bit of study, like wondering why would he stop right before he crosses the Kidron Brook? You know, anything about the geography of Israel, uh, the Temple Mount and the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is heading, is divided by a valley, and that valley is called the Kidron Valley. And the primary purpose of the Kidron on this day, Thursday before the Passover, is to drain all the blood of the sacrifices out of the city. Uh, the Mishnah speaks of the drainage system inside the, the altar place of the, the holy place, which carried the blood down. And there's a lot of blood, if you're squeamish, to, to understand how many animals they're sacrificing. They're sacrificing about a quarter million animals uh, in the first century every year. That calculates to about a million gallons of blood. Um, in the Talmud, also Rabbi Yehuda said that during the Passover, the priest would stop up all the drainage systems so that the priests who were barefoot by law would have to wade around in all that blood and that they would then let the, let the blood flow on Thursday night. Josephus mentions that the Kidron always ran red during Passover on Thursday night, precisely when Jesus is crossing. And even if Jesus couldn't see the red color of the blood, he certainly smelled the, the stench of all that death, all of the lambs who were dying, which only remind, served as a reminder to him that not, not a billion lambs could do what he was about to do. He was about to give his life and bear the full brunt of the wrath of God on our behalf. And so he stops his earthly teaching ministry he enters fully into his high priestly ministry, about to sacrifice himself for his own. And so then he stops and intercedes for us. Uh, he opens up his heart to his father and he prays out loud 
Specifically, he says he prays out loud for our joy so that we can be comforted to hear his determination to save us, that we can hear his love for us. We're going to divide up the, the chapter, even though we're kind of focusing on the last three verses, in four desires of Christ for us. Christ, four desires for us. First, that we be like him. Second, that we be with him. Third, that we see his Father's love. And fourth, that we experience that love. That we be like him, that, be, that we be with him, that we see his Father's love, and that we experience that love. Well, let's, let's read this beautiful chapter. John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world, for their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, 
so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, we beg once again that you would open our minds to see wondrous things in your law and that we would just understand a little bit more today of the depths of your love for us and that we would rejoice in that love, that we would reciprocate that love and spread that love to all your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this whole kind of section starting in John 13, verse 1, where John tells us that this section is describing that Jesus loved his own, says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Um, And so it's not surprising that this chapter is filled with the love of God. And what I want to (laughs) do, we'll see how I do. I preached this in eight messages in Spanish ministry. I want to try to preach the first seven messages in about five minutes in my first point here in verses 1 to 23, just to kind of get us up to speed so that we can do the last paragraph. Because I think if we just try to do the last paragraph, we're going to be completely lost. So just know we're heading to verses 24 through 26, but I just want to try to help you see that the primary petition of Christ for us in the first 23 verses is that we be like him that we're changed into his image. Now, of course, in verse 1, Christ's primary objective is to glorify his Father. That is the great ambition of his life. That trumps everything. He does everything for the glory of his Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? That the Son may glorify you. So his only ambition is to glorify his Father. But then throughout the rest of the petition... Right? He describes his desire for us, his petition for us. And in verse 2, he says that his desire is to give us eternal life. Okay, well, what does eternal life look like? Verse 3, eternal life is knowing God in Christ. Eternal life is knowing God in Christ. And that's why verse 4, Christ is going to the cross. That's why he's teaching his disciples about his father, verses 6 through 8, because they need to know his father, they need to know his character. That's why in verses 9 and 10, he's interceding on our behalf so that we can know God. Well, what does that actually mean to know God? Does that that mean we're going to have some intellectual facts about God? Well, of course not. Uh, to, To know someone in the Bible speaks of this intimate, loving relationship. God foreknew us before the foundation of the world, and that doesn't mean that he knew I was going to be tall with red hair. God knows everybody like that. Being foreknown speaks of this intimate, loving relationship to commune with him. In order to commune with him, you have to be like him. Uh, You can't know a gracious God if you don't know grace, if you're not gracious. And so we see for the first time in verse 11 this word, one, That Jesus wants us to be one with him, one with his Father. It's repeated five or six times in the chapter. It's the sort of primary petition for us. It says at the end of verse 11 that they may be one. And how does he want us to be one with him? It says that they may be one even as, Father, you and I are one. So if we, we ask ourselves, 
how we, these unholy people, are going to have a relationship with a holy God, well, well first we're going to have to become one with all of his holiness. Jesus longs for us to be sanctified. Verse 7, sanctify them by the truth. Uh, that's why he's sending us out in the world, verse 18, so that all the elect can hear and become like Christ. That's why he's interceding for us. That's why he sacrifices himself for us. Right? As a high priest, he doesn't plead for the world. He doesn't sacrifice himself for the world. He intercedes for us. And he says he sanctifies himself. Sanctify in that context is to sacrifice himself to fulfill his mission for us. And then notice starting in verse 21, how many times in this section where he's saying he's praying even for us who are going to hear the gospel through the apostles, just listen to how many times this word one is used. Verse 21, that they may all be one. And then think about what kind of oneness he wants for us. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected, literally, into oneness. The same word, one, there, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you have loved me. So many people misinterpret John 17 because they miss the fundamental point of what kind of unity Jesus is talking about. And many people hear Jesus, you know, pleading with his father, I just want my bride to be, just to have unity. And, and they think that means that Christ is after some sort of ecumenical unity between Christians where we're all sitting in circles singing Kumbaya. We're all in the same sort of denomination. That is not what Jesus is asking for. He says it over and over. He wants us to be one just like he is one with the Father. And so we just have to ask ourselves, how is Jesus one with the Father? It's not a oneness of purpose and mission only. It's a oneness of nature. It's a oneness of essence. It's a oneness of character. It's not unity amongst us. This is being in union with Christ and his perfections in the same way that he had union with the Father in all his perfections. Jesus is asking that we be perfectly transformed into his image. But again, we're after Jesus' heart here. We're after Jesus' desire. Why does Jesus want us to become like him so badly? Why do we have to become like him so much? And we see it at the end of verse 23. It's so that we can know that we are loved even as the Father loves Jesus. You have loved them even as you have loved me. I mean, it, it really is the, the Mount Everest of the Bible. You can't go higher than this. Christ wants us to be so perfected in our unity with him, so like him, that we become objects of the Father's affection such that the Father can love us just like he loves his eternal and beloved Son. And if you're thinking that's impossible, it's impossible that God can love us like that, well, then you're missing the petition. Because the petition is that we first become exactly like Jesus so that the Father can love us like he loves Jesus. When Christ's desire is fulfilled and we are completely like him, when we are completely like him in all his communicable attributes, when we are transformed into his image that perfectly, 
Well, then when the father sees us, all he will see is the beauty of his beloved son. Now, just as a theological parenthesis, many read this passage, especially false teachers, and say, wow, okay, so I'm going to be like Jesus in the same way Jesus is like God. And Jesus is God, that means when I become like Jesus, I'm going to be God, and I'm going to have all of his divine attributes too, and I'm going to be omnipresent, and I'm going to be omnipotent. This is going to be awesome. That is not what he's saying. Um, Jesus is here speaking in his humanity that he is perfectly one with God in all his holiness, in all his character. He's expressing the desire, as Peter states in 2 Peter 1.4, that we partake of the divine nature, not in his incommunicable omni-attributes, but in his communicable attributes, all his grace, all his mercy, all his holiness. Jesus has this amazing, amazing desire, desire that we become like him, that we share in his perfections, that we share in his beauty. Well, that is kind of an extended introduction to get us up to verse 24 so we can see the second desire. And it's that we may be with him. Verse 24, Father, I desire. You want to know Jesus' heart? What, what does Jesus want? I mean, you've got you know, to wonder. <laughs> Jesus literally tells us. He opens up his heart, and this is what I want. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, he says, Father, it's the fifth of six times in this chapter that he calls God Father. This relationship, Father, Son, is so beautiful. Christ, obviously, in his deity, has a father because he's eternally begotten by him. Christ in his humanity is also subject to God as his Father. And he says, Father, those whom you've given me, it's Greek in, in, in Greek is a singular noun there, seeing all of his disciples as the singular bride that, that God gave him, all of those who would believe in his word. So many times in this chapter, seven or eight times, he says, you have given them to me. We are the Father's gift to the Son. Right, the father loves his son so much that he created a gift for him, a wife that would reflect all of his son's perfections. And that, that really is where all of our value comes. Right, we're, not, we're not valuable because of who we are. We're not valuable because of our attributes. We're, we're something in a sense because we're a gift from the father. And I think we understand that because when someone who loves us very deeply buys us a gift. It doesn't have to be something fancy. It doesn't have to be something expensive. By the nature of who gave it to us, it becomes precious to us. We are the Father's gift that he gave to his Son. And Jesus says, those who you gave me, those who you entrusted to me, I want them to be with me where I am. Well, where is that? I want them to be with me where I am. If we're not kind of submerged into context, it sounds kind of weird because he's literally standing next to them. <laughs> and he's like, I want to be where I want them to be where I am. And I can imagine Peter's like, okay, <laughs> like prayer answered. I'm right here. Well, in the context, Jesus isn't on earth in his mind. Jesus has already died. He's already ascended to heaven. Uh, right? So many times in John 17, right? he says. 
I've finished, right? I, I have, verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Notice again in verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world. So he's, in his mind, he's already died. He's already ascended into heaven. And he's saying, I want them to be with me where I'm going in heaven, in my Father's house. But I think most people just go to that point. Okay, Jesus wants, to, wants us to be in heaven with him. But I think in the context of the gospel of John, it means even more than that. You think, well, how could it be, how could it be more than that? Is there, is there some place that's better than heaven? Well, in a sense, yes. Because you could be an angel in heaven who's, who's in heaven, but not flooded with God's love in the way we will be. You, you could have your sins forgiven, no longer deserve hell, but still not be adopted into God's family to receive his eternal love, right? A judge could declare you innocent of your crimes and invite you into heaven and not want to spend time with you. In the Gospel of John, where is Jesus before the Incarnation? Where is he returning to? Think of John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God, but the only begotten God, where is he? He's in the bosom of the Father. He's completely enveloped in the love of the Father. And Jesus says, I'm returning to you. I'm returning to your bosom, Father. I want them to be there with me. That's where Jesus desires for us to be, in the tender bosom of his Father. And if that's where Jesus wants you, that's where you will be. Because he's sovereign, and he always gets what he asks for. Such a a beautiful truth that we need to meditate on. uh, That At this moment, Christ is is seeing us collectively. Uh, Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, I'm the bride of Christ, which... Typically, it's usually the ladies thinking that. For a guy, it's really weird to think of an individual as a bride of Christ. But remember, we're collectively, the entire, all the redeemed, we're Christ's bride. And at this moment, Christ is like a husband, right, on the, the night before his wedding, just waiting to be united to his bride. He's wanting us to be with him where he is. He's waiting for the celebration of the, waiting, the, the wedding of the Lamb, waiting for us to be where he is. If you think, well, well, why aren't we there now then if Jesus wants it so badly? Well, because he says, I want all of them to be with me, all the redeemed, all the elect. Uh, you know, nobody wants half a bride. <laughs> right? Jesus, Jesus wants his whole bride to be there. And that's why he's sending us, because there's more people in Los Angeles. There's more people in the world, elect of God, that, that God has given to the Son as a gift uh, that still don't, do not know. Glorious truth, Christ desires that we be with him. Third desire, that we may see his Father's love. And continuing on with verse 24, he says, He wants us to be with him where he is. Why? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So he starts with this phrase, that they may see my glory. What, is, what does that mean? to see Jesus' glory. What, what, is the father, what is the glory that the Father gave him? Well, I mean, there, there is a sense in which the disciples had seen some of the glory of Christ, the, the glory of his love, 
some of his communicable attributes. John 1.14 says, We saw his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, the disciples had experienced some of that glory, his patience, his, his righteousness. But, but Christ has a lot more glory than just that, a lot more glory than what the, the disciples could see in his humiliation. He has all of the glory of his incommunicable attributes, a lot of things that the disciples had not seen. In the face of Christ, we see all the glory of God, okay? which confuses a lot of people because you think, okay, so, so Jesus wants all of his divine glory to be put on display so that we can see him in the full splendor of his glory. But then Jesus says here that all that glory was something the Father gave him. And it, it just kind of blows the mind because we, we kind of delve into some aspects of the Trinity that we cannot understand here. Um, but the eternal Son was begotten by the Father in eternity. Right? Son of God is not created. He's begotten. And that just makes very little sense in our sort of fallen temporal minds. When we think of begetting a child, we think of begetting a child in time. Begetting necessarily means there's a beginning because I'm a temporal being, so I beget temporal beings. But God's an eternal being and he begets his son with his same nature, which is also eternal. God can't be an eternal father if there was a time when he didn't have a son. If there was a time he didn't have a son, he wouldn't be an eternal father. He's always had the son. God is an eternal being, one being, subsisting in three persons. Christ never had a beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And the son explains here that the father begot his son with all his glory. They share the same essence. They share the same glory. Jesus explained that if you turn back to verse 5. He says, Father, glorify glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And that phrase, with you, is is key because Jesus is saying we shared the same glory in heaven. So Christ wants us to see that glory. He wants us a little bit like John did in John 1, forgive me, in Revelation chapter 1 when he has this vision of, of the glory of Christ. Remember it says, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Having his right hand, he had seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. His face was like the sun shining in all its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And I think that's, that too is also just a, a glimpse. John got a glimpse there of the glory of the sun because John's still in his fallen body. John's still seeing Jesus with fallen sinful eyes. Jesus wants us to get to heaven completely made like him so that with glorified and purified eyes, we will be able to see all the splendor and the glory of our beloved Christ. All of the glory of Christ shines in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Christ is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15. He is the radiance and the splendor 
the very substance and glory of God. So Christ longs for us to see this glory. We may have the joy of seeing his majesty. And Jesus knew his disciples had only seen him in his humiliation, in his state as a slave, and he wanted them to see him enthroned in majesty. Christ will not rest. He will not endure this unsatisfied desire forever. Christ will have his desire. We, his bride, will see him. We will cry out, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Well, a lot of people get confused by this phrase. It happens two times here that, that Jesus is wanting us to see his glory. And it's confusing because, you know, I'm saying that the, the, the point of this desire here is that he wants us to see God's love for us. And yet he's asking for his own glory. And it's like, wait, that seems like a selfish desire. Like, why is Jesus praying for himself? I thought you said that the love of God is always sacrificial. The love of God is always outward. It looks like Christ is inward. He wants himself to be glorified. Well, it happens in verse 1. So let's hit that really quickly, and then we'll come back to this context just so you can see the point. So when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, the hour has come glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The, the key to understanding that is that the only reason that Jesus wants glory is in order that he may glorify his Father. Jesus is not asking for glory for himself. He's asking for him to be the conduit in which God the Father is glorified. An example that I would use would be if I would say, hey, brothers, please pray for me. Um, I'm going to be speaking with, you know, an unbelieving neighbor, unbelieving co-worker tomorrow, and I just really need the Lord's help to, to be courageous and preach the gospel. Probably you're not thinking, man, what a selfish request. Like, Josiah's going to ask us to pray for him? Like, that's pathetic. Like, you're not thinking that. Why? Because, yeah, I am praying for me, but, <laughs> but I'm, not the, I'm not trying to seek a blessing for myself. I'm trying to seek the blessing of someone else. For God to use me to bless someone else. So Jesus knows that God is invisible. Jesus knows we can't see the glory of God. The glory of God shines in only one place. Where is that? In the face of Christ. So the only way that God the Father can be glorified is if he's glorified through the Son. So the Son says, glorify me. Why? So that I can glorify you, so that I can show the world how beautiful you are. And so here again now in verse 24, it says, I want them to see my glory, the glory that you've given me. Because what is that going to reveal? What is that going to show the world? It's going to show the world that you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Once again, we see this amazing truth that everything in this world exists as an expression of inter-Trinitarian love, the love between the members of the Trinity. The reason we exist is that we are an expression, an outpouring of the Father's love for His Son, a gift from the Father to the Son to show Him His love. It's amazing, the love of God that is always outward, always seeking to bless others, always finding another person to love. Right? No one has greater love than the one who gives His life right, for others. And that's what we see in the Trinity, this 
sacrificial love that is never self-interested. The Father is seeking the glory of the Son. The Son is glory. They just all glorify each other. Right? The, the Father seeks the joy of His Son. The Son seeks the joy of His Father. Holy Spirit is the one who writes this. They can reveal the glory of the Father and the Son. So He says, glorify me so the world can see that you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Right? The Father, the, the, the reason why the Father begot the Son in eternity is because of his love for him. And, and, and he wants the world to see that. Right? Obviously, the Son also loves the Father. John 14, 31 says it. But he's saying here, I want them to see my glory so that, so that they can see your love that they can revel in the love that you have for me. So the point, once again, Christ is just enthralled. He's amazed. He's just marveling at the astonishing love of the Father for him. And he desires for the whole world to be just as amazed by the great love of his Father. He wants to see and marvel at the love of God, the love that the Father had for the Son for all eternity. Is let them see my glory, Father, because then they're going to see your eternal love. They're going to magnify the eternal love that you have for the Son. And then we get finally to the, the climax here in verses 25 and, and 26, the, the fourth desire, the final desire that we may experience his love, not just to see it, but to experience it. He says, verse 25, Righteous Father, The world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them. I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ repeats as he does many times in this chapter, the world has not known you. The world does not know your love, Father. Knowing you is eternal life. Knowing your love is life. It is joy. The world doesn't know that. The world doesn't know your love. The world is not going to know your love. I don't pray for them. I don't intercede for them. I don't sacrifice myself for them. I'm only interested in the bride that you've given me. I know you. My disciples know you. I know that they know you because they believe that you sent me. Jesus explains many times in John, he who believes in me doesn't believe in me. He believes in the Father, the one who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. So Christ adds in verse 6, I have made your name known to them. First he said they know you, that is they're saved. And now he's speaking to the sort of process of sanctification. Uh, I have declared to them, I've made known to them your name. Remember in, in Jewish culture, the name of someone really is an expression of all of their attributes. Right, God in Exodus 34, right, he proclaims his name, that he's Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious God, and he just lists all of his perfections. So when Jesus says that he's revealing, his, re- revealing the Father's name to us, the idea is that he is making known to us all of the Father's character, all of his patience, his goodness, his mercy, his grace. He's sanctifying us into that image. He says, I've I've made that known to them. The Spirit has begun this work in us. 
And then Christ adds, and I'm going to continue to make it known. I'm going to continue to declare your name for them. That is, I'm going to finish this work of sanctification. I'm going to make them fully like your name, Father. I will continue to help them know you to be more like you. That's my mission. But then again, it's okay. Jesus is going to the cross in order to sanctify us. He's going to the cross to work all of God's name in us. But what's he after? Like, what's his desire? What's Jesus' end game? Like, what's this whole plan of redemption after? What's he trying to get? End of verse 23. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. There's, there's so much there. I mean, it's just, I, we, we could be here for 80 years. We'd never get close to understanding what that phrase means. I think the, the most obvious thing it means is that Jesus wants us to be the objects of God's love that we receive the Father's love just as the Father loves the Son. When we are in Christ, when Christ is in us, then we're going to enter into that same inter-Trinitarian love that has flourished from before the foundation of the world. And that's just a remarkable thing, to, to just meditate on the question, well, what is the Father's love for the Son like? I mean, the, the, the Father's the father is enraptured with every perfection of his son, his beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There's nothing about the son that doesn't please the father. He's completely in love with his son for all eternity, not ever tired of him. It's not that God creates us because he's like getting bored with his son. Like he creates us because he's so enraptured with his son. It's a perfect love. It's an unbreakable love an unchanging love, and flappable love. The love of the Trinity is just, it's beautiful in part because it is so selfless that the Father's doing everything to magnify his Son so that his Son's bride will worship him. The Son's doing everything to glorify the Father. The Spirit, John 16, 14, the Spirit glorifies the Son. He discloses Jesus to us. God's love is this perfectly selfless outpouring of affection, one person to the other, never self-seeking. It, it's hard to fathom because our, our affections, our love is so twisted inward. Like We, we try, but even as Christians, we, we try to love someone with completely selfless motive and our sin just corrupts it. And we can't, we can't love someone exactly like God does us. God's love is not like ours. His love is a fountain of blessing, always flowing outward to others, to bless others. Obviously, we see that most clearly on the cross. Jesus dying for us, his enemies, to bless us. Jesus wants us to experience the fullness of that love, the love of the Father, that eternal love of the Father toward the Son, that we would know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God for us. But I do think there's a second element of this love that sometimes we miss in this verse, and that is that the love of God 
especially in this chapter when we see the love of the Father to the Son, the love of the Son to the Father. The love of God is always reciprocal. And I think we see in this final phrase that we will not only receive God's love, when Christ finishes revealing to us the name of his Father, when we become made like him perfectly, then we're going to be also just as loving as the Father. We will, we will love with that same love. We will reciprocate the love of God back to him. Love of God has been poured into our hearts. Right? We will have the joy of entering into enter that Trinitarian love and loving and being loved as we are loved. Because it says, right, God's love will be in us. God's love is not going to be in us and just lie dormant. God's love is active. Read 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's, it's outward. We will love and be loved like God. And that's something to just meditate on for the rest of your life. <laughs> just meditate on the truth that Christ's desire, Christ's heart, is that we enter into this perfect divine love. And there's a sense in which I wanted to end the sermon right here and just exhort us to marvel and wonder at the love of God, which, again, we, we ought to do. But I was reflecting on the fact that the epistle of 1 John, I think, is kind of John's reflection of his gospel, where he draws out some applications for us of the things that Jesus said in the gospel of John. So I wonder if we might just close in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 is, you know, just this amazingly famous chapter about the love of God. In verse 8, God is love. Just such a classic statement. God's love is selfless, seeking the good of others. Verse 10, this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who sought us out. He's the one who blessed his enemies, died for them, washed us of all of our sins, took the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf. But that reality that God is love, that reality that God has loved us, is in John's mind not something that we should just marvel about. (laughs) It's something we should do something about. Because he says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. All right, we should get to work now. Like, don't, don't wait for heaven <laughs> to love like Jesus. Don't, don't wait to heaven to engage in this Trinitarian love. Start now with the brethren. And then he makes this remarkable claim. We'll end with this in verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, if you know the gospel of John, that phrase, I think, should be ringing some bells in your mind. No one has beheld God at any time. That's almost an exact quote of John 1.18. Remember, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And so in John 1.18, John 
essentially explains that no one has seen the invisible God, but Jesus reveals him to us. Right? Jesus is the image of God. So no one has seen God, but Jesus makes him known. And then in 1 John 4.12, he starts the same way and says, no one has seen God at any time. But then instead of saying, but Jesus reveals him, he says, and when we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Because when we love with the love that God has poured out in our hearts through his spirit, when we love like that, when we love like God does with his inner Trinitarian love, then we put God's love on display and the world sees God in us. It's his love, that selfless love. So let's seek to marvel at Jesus, to marvel at his heart, his heart of love. And let's seek to be like Jesus in loving one another as he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this revelation of your love for us. Thank you that you sent your son to pay the penalty that we deserve to die our death on the cross, to be buried in our place, to rise on the third day. We thank you for your spirit that changes us and transforms us and makes us like you to experience the love that you have poured out in us. And we thank you for the gospel of John. We can see the heart of our Savior for us, the desire that we be like him, that we be with him, that we see your love and that we experience your love. And we also thank you for John 19, when Jesus exclaimed to Telestai, it is finished. Because we know in that moment, Christ's petitions were answered. And John 17 is now a reality for us. We long for that moment. We will experience your love in its fullest, but we know that even now we have it. You love us as you love your son. So we thank you and we praise you. Amen.